After all, these implements and texts designed by intellects of X to find evidently there's so much that hides. And though the saints of us divine in ancient feeding lines, their sentiment is just as hard to pluck from the vine. Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 104, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and from Cosmic Rays in Another Dimension. Wow, so here we are, part five mm-hmm. of our look at the 1995 Marvel's 1995 Age of Apocalypse event that ran through all the X-Men books, right? We got mm-hmm. we did X-Men Alpha. We did, yes. We did we X-Men did Chronicles. Chronicles 1 and 2. We did uh, all of the, you know, the, they changed their names for the duration. We did Excalibre, Gambit, and the Externals, right? Mm-hmm. Factor uh, X, Factor Astonishing X. X-Men, Amazing X- X-Men, X-Men. X-Men was the other one. <laughs> Generation Next. Uh, right? That's right. I, I, knew, <laughs> I knew I would forget a couple if I didn't, if I didn't uh, have some help here. So, <laughs> finally, we have gone through all of it. We are finally ready to conclude the Age of Apocalypse with the final issue, X-Men Omega. But first, Hmm. (laughs) in this episode, we are going to take a little aside and see what was going on in the rest of the Marvel Universe while things were all wacky and, uh, you know, different-y and whatever. And uh, this time we're going to read X-Universe numbers one and two, and we're going to start jumping right into it. X-Universe number one, cover date May 1995. Story is Last Stand by Scott Lobdell, Terry Terry Kavanaugh, and Carlos Pacheco. Uh, special note is that this story takes place between Weapon X number three and number four, which we discussed two episodes back. So this is in the middle of this story, basically of Age of Apocalypse and kind of like the Resistance trying to topple ap- ap- Apocalypse while he's trying to take out Europe and stuff like mm-hmm. this. Uh, so Scott Lobdell, we've met him many times over at this point. So the super fast version. He was born either August 24th, 1960, or someday during 1963, perhaps in or, or near Marlboro, New York. He did not grow up a comic book fan, only resorting to reading them while convalescing after lung surgery. Worked on the college newspaper as a writer and cartoonist, and he performed interviews, including with comics editor Al Milgram, and felt he had an in at Marvel after that. He pitched a story to Tom DeFalco for the Marvel Comics Presents anthology using an obscure characters, because he had chosen a big-name character he figured it would have to be okayed by upwards of four editors. And he became an architect of the X-Men line, and took part in many an X-over, good one, mm-hmm. uh, including this one we're reading today. Yes, and uh, a little bit further down the table, we got Terry Cavanaugh, born July 9th. He was a writer and editor for Marvel Comics from 1985 through 1997. He was famously sort of kind of responsible for the Spider-Man clone saga, so saith uh, Spider-Man editor at the time, Mark Bernardo. He said, marching orders we were given by upper management to come up with something similar in scope to DC's Death of Superman storyline, which at the time was breaking sales records left and right. Thus, no outrageous idea was out of bounds. 
Terry Cavanaugh was cajoled into blurting out his clone idea, which was first met with groans and indifference until someone, to my recollection, J.M. DeMatteis, suddenly realized the radical possibilities of such a storyline. The original plan, of course, was to bring Spider-Man back to basics, uh, stands to reason. Spider-Man's basics always included clones, right? That, that, yeah. always, that always simplified things when you threw clones in the mix. Absolutely. Uh, wasn't an ex, uh, he wasn't an ex-writer prior to the Age of Apocalypse, but he would eventually take over the X-Man ongoing. And, uh, oh yeah, by the way, X-Man is going to continue past its fourth issue, because <laughs> no one can get enough cable, that is a fact. Uh, since there isn't much more to say about Terry, we can note that in 2011, he founded MyBeanJar.com, an internet startup and an iPhone app subtitled Games with Benefits. Casual gaming winners would receive actual prizes in the form of pizzas, cupcakes, and lattes. But uh, we won't link to this in the show notes because it doesn't look like it's a thing that exists anymore. But no. I wouldn't mind a uh, free pizza. I'll tell you what. Sure, deliver me a cupcake. I'll be your best friend for Bring a that long back. time. Yeah, let's, let's see that again. <laughs> now we have across the table for Carlos Pacheco, born November 14, 1962, in San Roque, Cadiz, Spain. Early on, Carlos worked on Spanish translations of Marvel Comics for pan-European publisher Planeta de Augustini. Uh, his first published work appeared in Marvel Heroes, with uh, accents on a couple of those vowels, number 41. This was a uh, May 1991 cover date. The story was called American Soldier, and it was written by Antonio Moreno. Uh, he worked as a penciler on Dark Guard. This is October 1993, written by Dan Abnett. This was for the Marvel UK branch, which would garner him the attention of Marvel's North American editors. His first American work was on the 1994 Bishop miniseries that was written by John Ostrander. He'd also have a very brief run on The Flash for DC Comics. From here, Carlos entered the Age of Apocalypse. Now, as with you know, several of the artists and writers we've discussed here, this guy was very, very early on in his career by the time of this crossover. Yeah, yeah there's much more to say about him later, but here we are today. So yeah. our story opens in Wakanda, where we meet. Who else would you expect to meet in Wakanda but... Gwen Stacy, her first sure. appearance being American Amazing Spider-Man number 31, December 1965, cover date created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Uh, Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy, and Peter Parker, of course, is Spider-Man's alter ego. We'll be talking more about him later. We're undergraduates at Empire State University. After playing hard to get for a while, she starts dating Peter Parker, coincidentally right when his relationship with Mary Jane Watson concludes. Gwen and Peter date for a little while with the support of Gwen's dad and NYPD Captain George Stacy, who also thinks Spider-Man is swell at this point. And he doesn't even seem to mind when he figures out that Peter and Spidey are one and the same, so that's even uh, easier for him to deal with. Sure, now things take a turn when Captain Stacy is killed by falling debris that results from a fight between Spider-Man and Dr. Octopus. Now, that fight took place in Amazing Spider-Man number 90, November 1970 cover date by Stan Lee and Gil Kane. Now, Gwen's pretty messed up after this, so she heads to Europe for a while to uh, eat good cheese, maybe. That's what uh, I would do there, sure. And maybe uh, do something between the sheets. No, we don't talk. We're not talking about that. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And we won't talk about that again later. Nope, not at all. Now, she comes back to New York to date Peter again uh, soon afterwards. Uh, in Amazing Spider-Man 121, June 1973 cover date by Jerry Conway and Gil Kane, Gwen Stacy is kidnapped by the Green Goblin and thrown from the George Washington Bridge. 
which, uh, you know, looks uh, suspiciously like the Brooklyn Bridge. But, uh, exactly like it. Who's keeping track? That's all right. Uh, and I think it's even called that a few times. I, I don't remember which bridge it wasn't called. Over yeah, years, they, so. they, it's a little all over the place, but it's a bridge is the <laughs> it's point. It's the frog's neck. No. Uh, now, Spider-Man tries to save her with some web-slinging, but upon contact, there is a sickening snap, implying that her neck is broken. Peter explains this way by saying she would have died either way. If you say so, Mythbuster. I know, really. Uh, (laughs) He tested it with a watermelon. (laughs) Really? Uh, uh, Spider-Man winds up killing the Green Goblin with his own glider the very next issue. Now, at conventions and speaking engagements in the real world, Stan Lee took a lot of guff for Gwen Stacy's death, despite not writing the story, and he told Jerry Conway that Gwen had to come back somehow. Jerry does just that in Amazing Spider-Man number 144, covered eight Mace in 1979 with Ross Andrew, when Gwen shows up in Peter's apartment after having returned from France, with no memory of what happened since her European trip that followed her father's death. Turns out she's a clone created by the Jackal, and upon learning this, she takes off to find her own way in life. Her story wound up spinning off into the television show That Girl, starring Marlo Thomas at... Wait, that, that part isn't true? I thought it was nine to five. I thought one of those, right? I thought so. <laughs> it was one of those. Yeah, Mary Tyler Moore wasn't that with the show or something. Like she threw that. a hat in the air. It was all good, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it snapped. Uh, no, <laughs> this this would ultimately lay the groundwork. You know, the Jackal being a creeper and creating clones here. Uh, this would lay the groundwork for the infamous Clone Sagas. Uh, that's uh, both of the Clone right, Sagas, yeah. the real one and the realer one, I guess. Which are the original one and the elongated one, right, we'll say. Right. Uh, now, we covered that in, ish- in episode 24 of the Cosmic Treadmill in the archives. Uh, indeed, Gwen Stacy clones keep popping up even throughout the 1990s. And then, uh, an amazing Spider-Man number uh, 509. Uh, yeah, we don't have to talk about that, Chris. We can stay right here in the 1990s. Okay, and I, and I don't think we'll talk about that again later. Too, no, so we're, we're never going to talk about that this whole episode. <laughs> now, uh, back to the story. Uh, Gwen has medical supplies, and she's there to see the see to the Wakandan people. And there she mentions the passing of Wakanda's warrior king, who we know as the Black Panther. Real name, T'Challa. First appearance, Fantastic Four number 52, July 1966, cover date, created by Stan and Jack. Now, the Black Panther is a ceremonial title given to the chiefs of the Panther tribe in the advanced and fictional African nation of Wakanda. It's so advanced because a meteor made of vibranium crashed into the area in the distant past. T'Challa was raised primarily by his father, King T'Chaka, his mother having died during childbirth and his stepmother having been taken prisoner by a rival tribe. When King T'Chaka is killed by the sonic weapon-wielding claw, T'Challa gets revenge and becomes the king of the tribe. After a, you know, a series of trials by combat, of right. course. Yeah, you can't you know, just walk gotta... into that kind of thing, you know. No, certainly <laughs> not. This prereqs. Uh, now, in his first published appearance, T'Challa invites the Fantastic Four to Wakanda in order to battle them in pre- preparation for a rematch with Claw. Uh, now, they beat him as a team, and then T'Challa explains himself. So they become fast friends. I mean, that's some, that's like someone invited you over for dinner and then tried to beat you up. Hit you with a frying pan. Yeah. And then when you couldn't, they were like, all right, let's be friends. You'd be like, what, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Anyway, uh, so Black Panther joins the Avengers in Avengers number 58, November 1968, cover date by Roy Thomas and John Buscema. And Avengers number 74, March, March 1970, cover date by the same team. He reveals his true identity on national, that is, American national television. 
Black Panther, he traveled to Wakanda, then returned to America and do a little traveling through the time, through the, uh, doing a little traveling through time during the 1970s as well. Uh, he never shied away from the nature of his character, though. He fought the Ku Klux Klan and confronted apartheid in South Africa. At this time, Chala is engaged to Monica Lynn, but they aren't yet married. And they never will be. You shush now. <laughs> uh, now, Gwen is approached by a young boy named Nkim, and he tells her that his mother is starving and ill and very close to death. All Gwen can give is a prayer. Nkim runs off to be by his mother's side as she passes away, but he doesn't get far before he's eradicated by a bomb. Oof. Enter the Marauders! And they are Arcade, whose first appearance was Marvel Team-Up number 65, January 1978, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. He's Marvel's tepid answer to DC Comics' Joker. Arcade's backstory is mysterious and unknown. Indeed, he has given conflicting accounts over time. One telling says that Arcade murdered his wealthy father and inherited his riches, setting up his first murder world, and these are diabolical amusement parks filled with death traps that Arcade sets up using his technological prowess. Uh, with the aid of even more mysterious ass assistants, uh, Mr. Locke and Ms. Chambers, Arcade became the world's most ex expensive assassin, charging $1 million per hit. His Achilles heel is that Arcade always leaves the people he traps one small possibility of escape, which, if they are the protagonist of that given comic book, which they make fast use of every single time, you know. It's nice of him to give them a sporting chance. A little something, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I, my favorite thing is when he struck that match on Doctor Doom's oh, shoulder. Oh, that was oh that that, oh. Was, that caused a rift between Burn oh. and Clint. <laughs> Another member of the team is the Owl. Real name Leland Owlsley. I get it. Uh, now, first appearance, Daredevil number three, August 1964, created by Stan Lee and Bill Everett. Originally a well-respected financier known as the Owl of Wall Street, Owlsley was defamed when he was audited and indicted for tax evasion. And he, worth noting, he also looks an awful lot like an owl, yeah, incidentally. That's, so. got, that's got a his, yeah, there, that's the yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like the butler who was born, you know, named Jeeves. You know, right, what, exactly. what, else what else are you going to be, uh, you know? <laughs> Now, Owsley fled to Manhatt from Manhattan to New Jersey, and uh, there he took a serum that gave him the ability to fly. When Owsley had a chance encounter with Daredevil, he decides to kill Matt Murdock to become the undisputed king of the underworld. He failed. You might, you might figure. Uh, now, the owl tussles primarily with Daredevil, though he does mix it up with other Manhattan-based superheroes as well. He's also forever trying to usurp the kingpin as the leader of New York's underworld. Over the years, self-inflicted experiments to give the owl more powers have dehumanized him, and he was last seen actively eating live mice. I mean, at this point, can a guy like that really be king of the underworld? I mean, <laughs> you're just live mice alone, you're going to bankrupt the whole organization. So, sure. uh, Also, there is Red, who we know as Norman Osborn, a.k.a. we would know him as Green Goblin. First appearance was Amazing Spider-Man number 14, July 1964, cover date. Created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Uh, Norman was born in New Haven, Connecticut, the son of wealthy industrialist Amberson Osborne. When his dad lost his business, he became a drunk and would torment and beat Norman mercilessly. Norman swore to be a better person than his father, all the while nursing homicidal tendencies throughout uh, his young life brought about by his violent home life. Norman excels at the sciences in college and meets his wife, Emily, and they have a son named Harry, who would become Peter Parker's buddy, among other things. 
Uh, Norman starts up a chemical business called Oscorp that is wildly successful. When Emily becomes ill and dies before Harry is a year old, Norman, of course, gets all bitter and throws himself into his work and neglects his son. Ejecting his partner and mentor, Norman goes through his files to discover a formula for a super strength and intelligence enhancing serum. Norman tries to recreate this serum, and it blows up in his face. It has literally. The, it does, <laughs> literally. It has the desired effect on his smarts and muscles, but it also turns him completely insane. You take the good, you take the bad. Sure. Uh, Norman it, actually, it actually doesn't ruin his face like Dr. Doom's got ruined either, it's so it's not a bad deal, really. He's still as ruggedly handsome as ever. <laughs> <laughs> now, Norman adopts the Green Goblin identity in order to take over organized crime. <laughs> and to that end, he plans on killing Spider-Man. Now, he showed up uh, a lot in the early issues in near succession, including Amazing Spider-Man 14, 17, 23, 26, and 27. Norman Osborn eventually discovers that Spider-Man and Peter Parker are one and the same and lures him to a warehouse for uh, for some taunting in Amazing Spider-Man number 39. This is August 1966, cover date by Stan and uh, John Romita Sr. Uh, Peter breaks free of his restraints, and uh, Norman is electrocuted by some stray wires, conveniently erasing his memory of Peter's dual identity. I mean, I, I love this issue because it's like over over across the you know street in D.C., when someone endeavored to kill Batman, they had him suspended over a tank of sharks with electric eels, you know, and like, uh, you know, trained archers, whatever. Spider Man, he, he didn't, he didn't have a second part of the plan. Just capture Spider Man and just gloat, you know, and for a long time, and then eventually Spider Man gets out. So uh, Norman, he's to, even now that he's lost his memory and forgot that he was Green Goblin, he's still tormented by his Green Goblin persona subconsciously. And over time, slips back into his green and purple tights now and again when the mood strikes him. Uh, eventually, he kidnaps and kills Gwen Stacy, as we've already discussed when we talked about her. Uh, Norman is, like we said, killed by his own glider in the following issue. But you can't keep a green goblin down for the purposes of 1995, however, <laughs> he is down. Uh, you know, we might as well really talk about what happened between him and Gwen, right? Uh, no, we're going to move on, Chris. Oh. We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> we're gonna for, now we're going to meet Dirigible, whose uh, <laughs> real name is Wilson Fisk. We know him better as the Kingpin. I, I, uh, I think I know him better as Dirigible now, dirigible. Though, quite frankly. <laughs> It's a hard word to spell, incidentally. <laughs> yeah. uh, his first appearance was Amazing Spider-Man number 50, July 1967 cover date, created by Stan Lee and John Romita. Uh, Wilson Grant Fisk grew up a poor, fat child in New York City. He was routinely bullied for his corpulence. Uh, he came up through New York's underworld and lived in Japan for a while, posing as a respectable businessman exporting spices. He was not a respectable businessman. Nope. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, at this point, that's about all we know about his early life. Uh, it has been filled in, but in issues that came out, you know, more contemporarily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, at 1995, this is really all we knew. Uh, in his first appearance, Fisk attends an organized crime convention where he orders the kidnapping of J. Jonah Jameson of the Daily Bugle. Uh, he thought Spider-Man was out of action at the time, but sorry for him, no such luck. Yeah, uh, the Kingpin was actually married to a woman named Vanessa, and they had a son named Richard together. We see her for the first time shrouded in shadows in The Amazing Spider-Man number 70, March 6, 1969, by Stan Lee and John Romita. But we aren't introduced to her as Wilson's wife until The Amazing Spider-Man number 83, April 1970, cover date by the same team. 
Vanessa convinces her husband to quit his life of crime and move back to Japan. Before doing so, Fisk turns over his files to the authorities. Some mafia types were unhappy with this, uh, reasonably so. So they kidnapped his wife and appeared to kill her, which spurs Kingpin back into a life of crime. This is a really a common thing, basically. Men, if they're not with a woman, they're criminals. That's, that's yes. essentially what we've learned from <laughs> comics. Okay. Uh, he takes over New York City almost immediately, even installing a new mayor. Uh, Daredevil, ever the thorn in his side, mucks up Fisk's plans. So he tasks Electra with killing Daredevil's BFF, Foggy Nelson. Uh, she winds up having a thing with Daredevil and gets killed by Bullseye instead. That's another story entirely. We'll talk about yes. some other time. <laughs> now, in Daredevil Born Again, uh, this is Daredevil's 227 through 233, February through August 1986 cover date, by Frank Miller and David Masicelli. Uh, in that, the Kingpin discovers King, uh, Daredevil, the Daredevil's sorry. true identity and uh, uses that to ruin his personal life. Kingpin then uh, kind of spins out and uh, commits some atrocities. Uh, oh, this is uh, Daredevil, and uh, this ruins his reputation even among the uh, criminals. Well, it's Kingpin after it's after he gets oh, Daredevil. Remember, he like does he does oh, yeah, he murders it. everyone like a whole bunch of people downtown. He just he just gets drunk he with power and just yeah. freaks out. Yeah. <laughs> now we'll eventually get to that one on the treadmill, but uh, in order to hold you over, you could take a listen to episode ninety-eight in the archives with. Nearly the same exact thing happens to Nightwing. You know, all that and... Uh, and yeah, a little that's a little more. extra piece we don't get in the Daredevil story <laughs> in that one. No. Uh, <laughs> later on, uh, Fisk gives Black Cat her bad luck powers, which ironically make her incompatible with the object of her affection, Spider-Man. Again, that's uh, sort of another story entirely. Yeah. Uh, in the 1990s, the Kingpin st- stars up a, starts up a cable television statement uh, with an analog to then uh, presidential candidate Ross Perot. Uh, he turns out to be a Hydra plant, hijinks ensue, and Wilson Fisk is a fugitive once more. Yeah, which is where he'd be now, but here in the alternate Age of Apocalypse universe, Fisk orders the other marauders to attack the citizens of Wakanda where, while he gets ready for the barbecue. Gwen takes aim and blasts the hell out of Fisk with a poom, 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 which is enough to reduce him to cinders. <laughs> Gwen's more bothered by this due to the fact that she had to waste tech than she is being forced to take a life. Arcade approaches, ready to kill Gwen, but then, hovering down, a giant mechanical spider appears. This is a stark cargo transport, and it drops a payload of medical supplies right on top of Arcade. He's just a puddle of blood. And that's it. You know, we took him out, boom, with a cargo drop. Uh, Inside that ship are Tony Stark. We know him as Iron Man. First appearance was Tales of Suspense number 39, March 9th, 1963, cover date. Created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, Don Heck, and Jack Kirby. Now, Anthony Edward Stark was adopted by wealthy industrialist Howard Stark and his wife, Maria. Howard Stark was modeled after famous industrialist and reclusive filmmaker Howard Hughes, and in some ways, so was Tony Stark. Uh, Howard Stark owned Stark Industries, a manufacturer with a lucrative U.S. military contract. Tony Stark is a child genius and enters MIT at age 15. When his adoptive parents are killed in a car accident while Tony is still a young man, he inherits their wealth in Stark Industries. And initially, he uses this money to party hard. (laughs) Now, a booby trap injures Tony, and he's captured by the Viet Cong forces of Wang Chu. They imprison him in Vietnam, and they force Tony to, to develop and build weapons for them. Tony discerns that shrapnel from the booby trap is working its way toward his heart, which is, uh, you know, fatal. 
with the help of a fellow prisoner, another scientist with great admiration for Stark, he creates an iron chest plate that magnetically keeps the shrapnel from moving. Together, he and this uh, fanboy create a suit of iron armor that Tony uses to escape, uh, sacrificing the fan club member in the process. <laughs> ah, well, you know, he, he wanted it that way. <laughs> he, he would have wanted it yeah. that way, yes. Uh, now, free of his prison, Tony meets up with the American forces and gets some revenge on Wang Chu and the Viet Cong. And he also bumps into wounded fighter pilot James Rhodey Rhodes, who will be important later on in a nice, convenient little uh, retcon happen there. Yes. Uh, back home, Tony learns that the shrapnel near his heart cannot be removed, so he has to wear the chest plate under his clothes at all times to stay alive. For comfort and efficiency, Tony redesigns the chest plate and armor a few times early on, finally settling on the more familiar red and gold version in Tales of Suspense number 48, December 1963, cover date, by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. For a long time, Tony Stark doesn't reveal that he's Iron Man except to his chauffeur, Happy Hogan, and his secretary, Pepper Potts, because he only reveals his secret identity to people with catchy nicknames. So, that's a good way to be. That's, that's you know that's I'm, my motto. Yeah. They 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 have no shame, so you know you can tell them whatever you want. That's what I said. <laughs> so, over time, Tony Tony Stark's stance became pretty anti-war, and he ends Stark Industries' contracts with the U.S. government, refusing to make weapons of war for anybody anymore. Uh, instead, they make weapons for Shield and the Avengers. You know, just kind of under the table, though. Yeah, it's okay. And, and they're definitely not in league with the government, no. so it's okay. Oh, they're cool. <laughs> now, eventually, Tony gets an artificial heart transplant, but uh, he still likes wearing the armor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Indeed, he makes a lot of improvements to it over time, even developing special suits to handle certain climates and to explore space. Tony develops a drinking problem in the storyline Demon in a Bottle by David Michelini and Bob Layton that ran in the Invincible Iron Man 120 through 128, March through November 1979 cover dates. During the story, he loses controlling interest in Stark Industries to S.H.I.E.L.D., but he kicks his drinking habit, so, you know, things are looking up. Now, after Doctor Doom sends himself and Tony back to the time of King Arthur for a while, Tony returns and he's plagued by business rival Obadiah Stane, who causes Tony to relapse and takes control of Stark Industries. Tony becomes a homeless vagrant and gives up his Iron Man armor to, to Rhodey, who takes on the mantle for a time. This begins in Invincible Iron Man number 170, May 1983, cover date by Denny O'Neill and Luke McDonald. Tony claws his way back to sobriety and respect by building a new Iron Man suit and fighting his friend Rhodes, who has been, dr been driven temporarily insane by Tony's Iron Man armor. Then he fights Obadiah Stane in his own armor, pilfered from Tony's design, dubbing himself the Iron Monger. Obadiah loses, but then he has to fight it. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but he commits suicide rather than be taken alive. Tony regains his fortune, and instead of buying back Stark Industries, he creates Stark Enterprises and moves to Los Angeles. Now, during a storyline known as the Armor Wars that ran in Iron Man number 215 through 232, December 1987 through June 1988 cover dates by Bob Layton and David Michelini, Tony attempts to dismantle all the robot and robotic-assisted heroes and villains around the world using his designs. He screws this up royally <laughs> and becomes an enemy of the U.S. government. Uh, Tony Stark pretends to retire the Iron Man suit, but later pops up and pretends that it's someone else wearing the armor. Uh, later, former lover Kathy Dare shoots Tony in the torso and paralyzes him. He regains mobility thanks to a chip implant at the base of his spine. This chip would allow some business rivals to take control of Tony's body, but 
he counteracts them with a new suit of armor. So, so you could basically solve any problem with yeah. uh, the right proper armor. Yeah, if, if there's ever a problem, you just haven't found the armor to solve it. That's all there is <laughs> to it. You know, there's armor for everything. So uh, all this fooling around with Tony's nervous system takes its toll, and eventually he has to go into suspended animation to heal. Uh, Rhodey takes over Iron Man duties again, this time wearing a beefed-up suit and calling himself War Machine. Tony installs a new chip that rewrites his nervous system, okay, and returns to public <laughs> life in a new sleek Iron Man suit. Rhodey and others are pretty annoyed at him having faked his death, and that's not even the third worst thing Tony Stark has done to his friends. This week. Uh, hey, really? Uh, <laughs> Rhodes continues on as War Machine even after Iron Man comes back. Yes, now sitting beside Tony Stark in that spider craft we talked about an hour and a half ago yeah. is Clint Barton, <laughs> who we know as Hawkeye. Uh, Clinton Francis Clint Barton first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 57, September 1964, cover date by Stan Lee and Don Heck. Uh, Don, yeah, Don Heck. As uh, an arrow-shooting reluctant villain who would reprise that role in Tales of Suspense number 60 and 64, that's December 1964 and April 1965 cover dates, also by Lee and Heck. Then he joined the Avengers in the Avengers number 16, May 1965, by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby as an arrow-shooting hero. This was a Cap's kooky quartet. Yeah. Uh, now, Clint was born in Waverly, Iowa, and lost both of his parents in a car accident while he was still young. After six years in an orphanage, Clint and his brother Barney, Barney Barton, <laughs> ran away to join the Carson Carnival of Traveling Wonders. I mean, we know why Barney ran away, but Clint, when I, Barney <laughs> yeah. was like, damn you, why'd you name me that? <laughs> I got no chance. <laughs> <laughs> now, Clint soon caught the eye of the swordsman, who, along with the help of a tr of trick shot, the swordsman tricked, uh, I'm sorry, trained Clint <laughs> to become a master archer. It's a he might have tricked it, him into it, too. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? It's a circus. You know, everything is a... Everything's yep. uh, So the Swordsman incidentally was a fairly regular, regularly appearing supervillain in early Avengers comics, first showing up in the Avengers number 19, August 1965, covered eight by Lee and Heck. And Trickshot was a member of the Carson Carnival of Traveling Wonders, and he first appeared in Solo Avengers number one, December 1987, by Tom DeFalco and Mark Bright. So that really is a link bridging of some serious uh, storylines, uh, sure. that, that origin. But uh, Clint adapted his archery skills to become a star carnival attraction, a master archer called Hawkeye, otherwise known as the world's greatest marksman. Inspired by Iron Man, he wanted to become a hero, but screwed it up and was accused of becoming a criminal. <laughs> uh, after saving Jarvis and his mother from a mugger, Hawkeye's invited to join the Avengers. Simple. Clint would marry former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Barbara Bobby Morse, who's also known as the hero Mockingbird, and together they started up the West Coast Avengers in Los Angeles, California, after a suggestion by Avengers teammate Vision. Beginning in West Coast Avengers number 1, September 1984, cover date, by Roger Stern and Bob Hall, uh, Clint initially recruited Mockingbird, Wonder Man, Tigra, and Iron Man, which was uh, Jim Rhodes wearing the Iron Man suit at this time. Uh, when Mockingbird is kidnapped by the Phantom Rider and allows him to die as a consequence, her marriage to Clint becomes frayed, and they separate. And uh, that's actually where he is at the time of the Age of Apocalypse. Pretty much, yeah, pretty close to it. So, uh, Tony and Clint fire a pair of explosive blasts to take out the remaining two marauders. Stark has a Hawkeye drop the rest of the supplies to land the craft. As he deboards the spider ship, Tony is faced by Gwen Stacy. And she says, Not another step, stranger! Tony goes, enchanting. 
the sunlight playing off gossamer hair. The blazing spirit in every word hardly holds a candle to the fire dancing in your eyes. You must be Stacy. I just picture him always with a snifter of brandy, like even in the, yeah. whatever, <laughs> yep. in the Iron and Man suit. At all, yep. an, at all times. Uh, <laughs> such a suave guy. So he Gwen is. isn't nearly as taken by Tony uh, as he is with her. She holds him at gunpoint and asks about the whereabouts of Ben. This is, uh, she says, Ben Grimm usually delivers the supplies and we'll formally meet him in just a little bit. In the distance, a figure approaches. He is Donald Blake. We know him better as Thor, sort of. First appearance was Journey into Mystery number 83, August 1962, cover date, created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. A young Harvard University medical student, Donald Blake, is visiting Norway when he spots some aliens looking to conquer some random village. Uh, Escaping the aliens, Blake, who walks with a cane, flees deep into a cave where he finds a large hammer with ornately carved handle. This is Mjolnir, which, when struck on the ground, turns Donald Blake into the mighty Thor, the Norse god of thunder. And Thor dispatches the aliens pretty handily after that. Yes, uh, back in America, Donald Blake settles into a, the double life of handling his private practice by day with a nurse and love interest, Jane Foster, and fighting villains by eh, night and other times other, of day. Else, you know, whenever he can grab a free whenever moment, you know. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, Thor's resurrection is noticed by his brother Loki, the Norse god of mischief, who creates, uh, well, you know, a lot of uh, mischief for Thor. <laughs> oh. It comes with the title. Yeah. Uh, when Donald Blake refuses to return to Asgard, uh, instead preferring to stay with Jane Foster on Earth, his father Odin gets uh, he gets kind of annoyed. Uh, though he is one of the Avengers, Thor's battles are on a more epic, you know, god-level scale, uh, fighting actual figures from mythology as well as conceptual characters. Odin eventually screws up Donald's relationship with Jane Foster because, uh, you know, that's what that's what good fathers do. That's what. Well, you know, as we find out, he has bigger fish to fry. He does. Uh, this, that happened in Thor number one thirty six, January nineteen sixty seven, cover date by Lee and Kirby, and that's when we find out Donald Blake was a human form created by Odin in the first place in order to teach Thor humility. And uh, fairly well ditches that persona from this point from then on. I, we don't really see him again. Uh, he doesn't need to be. He is just Thor. So now we fast forward when Walt Simonson began writing and drawing Thor with issue number 337, November 1983, cover date. Things got really wacky. One of the best remembered aspects is the introduction of Beta Ray Bill, right there in that same issue, 337, who was a horse-faced alien who could also wield Mjolnir. And he proves to be an honorable, interesting character. In that run also, Thor takes over Asgard for a while when his dad dies battling a long-teased threat named Surtur. Loki turns Thor into Thunderfrog for a time in Thor number 352, February 1986, cover date, and then Thor and Loki fight side by side for a while, Loki even saving Thor's life. Later, Thor kills Loki and is banished from Asgard, but his father Odin wakes up from being dead and all is forgiven. So, back to the action in the book. Uh, Blake and Stark reunite. Tony goes, you look like hell, Donald. Blake says, same old Stark. No real class. Gwen says, back off, Dr. Blake, until I can confirm. Nonsense. Some things can't wait. The old friends, Stark and Blake, embrace. Now, Tony informs Donald that he is needed back in England right away. 
Gwen doesn't think this is a great idea due to Blake's health, but <laughs> he and nobody else is listening to her anybody. Yeah, anyway. no, she's just yeah. a dizzy dame, who cares? <laughs> uh, Shift scenes to London, where a convoy of ships hovers high above. This convoy is there to start the peace talks with the Human High Council, and it's being led by the ever-elusive Mikhail Rasputin. Finally. Yes. In a nearby Eurasian helicopter, we meet Ben Grimm. This is going to get complicated, folks, because we know him as the thing. Uh, first appearance is Fantastic Four number one, November 1961, cover date, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. He's born on Yancey Street on New York's Lower East Side. Benjamin Jacob Grimm grew up scrapping on the streets with the other poor kids. His older brother Daniel died in a gang fight when Ben was eight years old. And this much about Ben Grimm is analogous to co-creator Jack Kirby's life. Who had really the same experience he had, And even has said as much himself He had an older brother that died He fought a lot on the Lower East Side uh, Ben Grimm's parents passed away when he was young And was raised by his uncle Jake And his dear aunt Petunia Who he likes to name check evermore Yes. Uh, ben received a football scholarship To Empire State University Where he met his BFF Reed Richards As well as his not at all BFF <laughs> Victor Von Doom now, the story of Ben's young adulthood has shifted over the years. Uh, he was a test pilot for the U.S. Marines during World War II initially. Then later, he was shown to have worked for Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. Later, he followed up on a promise he made to Reed to pilot the first rocket that he built. And so he was aboard the fateful trip through the cosmic rays that altered everybody on board. Uh, ben inarguably caught the worst of it, uh, becoming an orange, rocky form known as the Thing. And unlike the other passengers on the rocket... He couldn't even return to his uh, normal human form. Initially, Ben trusts in his pal Reed Richards to restore his human form eventually, but when he meets the blind artist Alicia Masters and falls in love with her, he's a little less anxious to become human again, fearing that maybe she won't dig him as much anymore if he changes back. Mm. Uh, Despite this, the thing changes back into Ben Grimm several times, even in his earliest appearances, but it's always temporarily, and uh, he often has to choose to become Rocky again to serve the greater good. Just a quick note about this also. Ben Grimm is canonically Jewish and was conceived that way by Jack Kirby initially, but it wasn't definitively shown in comics until 2004. Uh, In the 1970s, however, Kirby did draw the thing for a Hanukkah card that he sent to friends and family. But it wasn't, you know, it was always something that was... It was during the Wade run, yeah. Exactly, yeah, that's when it was. was, uh, That's when they would talk about it before then, but we first see him, I think, having a Passover Seder or something. Uh, He's a reluctant but reliable member of the Fantastic Four, and I think that's enough for our purposes (laughs) today. Uh, Also there is Sue Storm, a.k.a. Invisible Woman, first appearance, Fantastic Four, number one, November 1961, created by Stan and Jack. Susan and her younger brother Johnny grew up on Long Island, children to physician Franklin Storm and a woman named Mary. (laughs) Driving home from an event in his honor, Dr. Franklin loses control of his car and crashes, fatally injuring his wife, and this sends Dr. Franklin spiraling down into depression and alcoholism, eventually pursuing a life of crime that lands him in prison. As such, Sue was a maternal figure to Johnny, even early on. Now, while living with her aunt at age 17, Sue would meet her future husband, Reed Richards, when he was staying there while attending college. She would reconnect with him when she attended college for acting in California, and they'd fall in love. Sue convinced Reed Richards to allow her and her brother Johnny aboard the fateful rocket flight, 
because she was worried something would happen to Reed and she wouldn't be there to cry about it in person. Oh, that would be too bad, yeah. It would have been. You don't want to get that by a letter. <laughs> uh, now, uh, she gains powers from traveling through those cosmic rays, and her powers are a little nicer than the things. She can turn invisible and also project force fields. Uh, initially, she takes the name Invisible Girl. Uh, Sue is the uh, fulcrum in Marvel's first love triangle, torn between Reed Richards and Prince Namor, the Submariner. Ultimately, however, Sue only has eyes for Reed. Sue and Reed would be married in Fantastic Four Annual Number 3, October 1965 cover date by Lee and Kirby. This is an event that stunned Marvel fandom, not just because of the marriage, but because so many beloved Marvel characters were actually in attendance at the ceremony. Uh, We would find out that Sue is pregnant in Fantastic Four Annual Number 5. And then their son, Franklin Richards, is born uh, in uh, Fantastic Four Annual Number 6. Uh, seems like all the good stuff for the Fantastic Four happens in the annuals around here. Huh? I guess it's the only ones that they could have some time, you know. The otherwise, matter. Yeah. otherwise, Jack Kirby's just cranking them out at the rate of six a day. That's the problem, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, uh, that's the one you can really stretch out in. But, uh, yeah, we've read before that people that got that, that annual, uh, the, where they got married at the time, number three, uh, that it was really the first time that they really felt it was a cohesive universe, even though they had sure. they had already, you know, referenced each other and then showed up in each other. But yeah. here, they all were at the same place. It was like, wow, this really is taking place in the same place, same time. So cool for the people that saw it at the time. Uh, due to Sue's cosmic ray irradiated blood, Franklin's born a mutant and brought to full power prematurely by a nihilist. And he has a he has like a generally destructive psionic type power, like a telekinetic jammy thing going on. Uh, Reed Richards shuts down his son's mind before he can do a lot of damage, a move that so annoys Sue that she separates from Reed in Fantastic Four number 130, cover date January 1973 by Roy Thomas and John Buscema. Uh, But don't worry, she returns to marital bliss in issue number 149, August 1974, by Jerry Conway and Rich Buckler, with the help of Namor, no less. Hmm. Can you believe it? One-time enemy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> when Sue's second child is stillborn, Psycho Man uses her fragile emotional state to make her become Malice, the mistress of hate, who wears a costume exactly like you'd expect a mistress of hate to wear. I hate <laughs> kind it. Of a, exactly. <laughs> In Fantastic Four, number 281, August 1985, covered eight by John Byrne, Reed gets Sue to drop her Malice persona by slapping some sense into her. Yes, really. That's right. Uh, yeah, a little more. Occam's razor in action. A right? little more to it than that, but basically <laughs> that's what happens. Uh, Sue does something off panel to Psycho Man that makes him scream horribly, then rejoins the team officially <laughs> in issue number 284 with the announcement that she's changing her name from Invisible Girl to Invisible Woman. Mm-hmm. Now, when Reed Richards is time-displaced following the events of the Infinity War that ran June through November 1992 by Jim Starlin and Ron Lim, Sue and the crew go looking for him. On the way back to their time and place, the Fantastic Four encounter Valeria Von Doom. This is the daughter of Sue and Doctor Doom from another dimension. And she joins up with them, too. Well, sure. you know, why not? You know what's going on. Why not? And if, if things, uh, you know, what everything old is new again, Sue gets possessed by malice. Yeah. <laughs> this, uh, this also happened during that Infinity War. And in issue three, number, uh, number 371, December 1992, by Tom DeFalco and Paul Ryan. She wears that unfortunate costume <laughs> that is barely there. Yeah. And uh, we're pretty sure that's close enough to the current events to, to move on. Yeah. But this is the one with the cutout four, if you know what we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. yeah. 
So uh, now Ben is smoking a stogie, which I don't know, seem, doesn't seem like the best of matters, being that they're in cramped quarters on this craft, you know, but whatever. Uh, they naturally don't trust Mikhail. Also, they don't trust Apocalypse. Come on, with a name like Apocalypse, what's not to trust? Come on, you know what I mean? That's just, that's just a family name. Yeah. Uh, ben says, I don't buy this for a second, and I hate playing nursemaid to a delegation we can't even see. And Sue goes, and I don't remember anyone asking us, Ben. Can you? Anyone did bother to ask. I tell them they were crazy to believe, even for a second, that Apocalypse would care a hoot about what happens to humans. On the bridge of the lead ship in the convoy, we finally see Mikhail. Uh, he looks as though he's been partially been assimilated by the fouling, so, doesn't he? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. A little computer up. Yeah, now uh, reporting reporting into Rasputin is his lead metahuman, the Keeper, who is better known to us as Matt Murdock. Whoa. Yeah, aka Daredevil. First appearance, Daredevil number one, April 1964 cover date, created by Stan Lee and Bill Everett. Now Matt was a son of professional boxer Battlin' Jack Murdock, and he's instilled with the importance of education, which uh, made him study incessantly. In saving an elderly man from being hit by a speeding truck, Matt Murdock is struck by a canister of radioactive substance that leaves him blind, but with a heightened perception or, or a, a sonar, sonar sense. Yeah. And and also, I think four turtles got eradicated or irradiated by <laughs> that, that was, too, right? That's a side story, but yeah, that's, yes. that's that very day, yeah. <laughs> now, in order to afford law school for his son, Jack Murdoch throws some fights as arrangement by an underworld figure known as the Fixer. This would ultimately get Jack killed. Remembering his promise never to resort to violence, Matt adopts the yellow and black color school of his uh, father's boxing uh, boxing trunks scheme, yes, and uh, becomes the acrobatic daredevil who can use violence because he's uh, you know wearing a costume, which uh, I don't know, kind of seems like a cheat, doesn't it? I mean, really, leave it to a lawyer to come up with this one, you know? Technically, (laughs) I'm not doing it, you know. But uh, (laughs) so over the next seven issues, Daredevil makes some minor changes to his costume, like in, in every issue, it's a as a plot point in the comic, and adopts a a retractable billy club that also acts as a cane when he's not in his daredevil guise. By issue number seven, April 1965, cover date by Lee and Wally Wood, Matt settles on the familiar all-red suit that we know today. Even though that has changed a little bit over time, you get the idea. Uh, Daredevil battles an assortment of weirdos and meets fellow New Yorker Spider-Man in number 16, May 1966, by Lee and Romita Sr., Spider-Man accidentally reveals Daredevil's secret identity, so Matt takes on another personality, Mike Murdock, the carefree twin brother of Matt. Uh, this goes on for a while, but it was deemed too silly and confusing, even for comics. So Mike dies in Daredevil number 41, June 1968, by Stanley and Gene Colan, and the character Daredevil, of course, remains... The reason why is a complicated story, the moral of which is that you should never, ever tell a lie, because that's... Never. You just dig yourself in deeper and deeper. <laughs> you spin uh, a web. Exactly. <laughs> uh, in issue... Daredevil issue number 57, October 1969, cover date by Stan Lee and Gene Colan. Daredevil reveals his true identity to his girlfriend, Karen Page, and she leaves him. So that was a bad idea, but don't worry. She comes back again and again and again and again. 
over and over and over again. Yes. Uh, in the 1970s, Daredevil moves to San Francisco and has a series of science fiction-based space adventures that are really not Daredevil style. No. You know, how can you use sonar when there's no sound in space, right? Which actually did come up in one issue, yeah, but it, but it's like, <laughs> it's just not really the right place for a guy like that. Certainly. Uh, now, he also dates Black Widow and issues uh, 93 through 108, uh, November 1972 cover date through March 1974 cover date. The book is titled Daredevil and Black Widow. Uh, they break up and Daredevil heads back to Hell's Kitchen in New York City. The later 70s cast Daredevil in a much darker, more horrifying universe, even getting a little gory at times. He even inadvertently causes the suicide of his girlfriend, Heather Glenn's father, by revealing his identity to her. Uh, This would set the tone for Daredevil going forward. In the 1980s, a fellow named Frank Miller took over writing and drawing duties for the series, and while he maintained the series' darker tone, Frank essentially rewrote whatever past elements he didn't dig. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, Miller ditched a lot of Daredevil's colorful foes in favor of, like, the kingpin primarily, and uh, most shockingly changed Jack Murdock from a supporting father to an abusive one, which changed Matt's reasons for becoming a lawyer in the first place. Yeah, this it was interesting because Daredevil had been, in a way, Marvel's answer to DC's 60s Batman, right? Yeah. Like a kind of a swashbuckling guy, campy, a lot of goofy, yeah. campy villains, and then and as Batman became serious, or, you know, it's almost like these two things are feeding each other. They're Daredevil, Daredevil yeah. turned serious, then, you know, Frank Miller did the same thing for Batman, but anyway. Now, Daredevil goes, uh, goes dark, becoming more of an anti-hero, and then in Daredevil number 181, April 1982 cover date, Daredevil attempts to murder Bullseye by throwing him off a roof. Don't worry, though. Bullseye survives as a uh, quadriplegic for a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Daredevil breaks into his hospital room and plays Russian roulette with him. So, they're playing together already. It's sure. fine. Everything was fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, he really is becoming a dark fella at this Very time. dark, yeah. Uh, because it's the 1980s at this point, ninjas had to be introduced to the story, and a sensei named Stick first appeared in Daredevil number 176. Uh, 19, November 1981 cover date uh, He was inserted into Matt's past As having trained him after he was struck blind The assassin turned love interest Electra was introduced in Daredevil 168 January 1981 Cover date but dies to bullseye Issued number 181 April 1982 cover date Daredevil gets his canonical origin For that moment in Miller and David <laughs> Masichelli's born again storyline That ran in issues number 227 To 233 February through August 1986 cover dates. Here, Karen Page returns, I think for the first time, as a drug-addicted porn star who sells Daredevil's secret identity. <laughs> uh, Kingpin uses information to destroy Matt Murdock, but then things get better later on. Matt goes back to law and superheroing, then drifts upstate for a while before returning to New York for some gritty city action. Miller and Mazzucchelli returned to the series in 1993 to retcon some of their earlier retcons by Miller, including the one about Jack Murdock abusing his son, which was a very welcome retcon, I always felt. Yeah. And uh, here we are, more or less. So He was going into the uh, the motocross outfit around this time, which was a whole other kettle of fish. That was another thing. You know, then there was also the armored one came on yeah. not too long after this or something. Uh, the costume does change slightly, but I would not say for any, any appreciable benefit. No. So, uh, anyway... Uh, in the Age of Apocalypse, Matt is still blind, but he has been granted a second sight by, Res- by Mikhail Rasputin. Uh, Matt reports that a boy, one of Mikhail's latest experiments, is redlining, and he will very likely die. 
Mikhail says this is unacceptable, but that kind of thing's not always up to us, is it, Chris? No, not really. You can't really no. control that sometimes. <laughs> you know? Now, at a nearby hangar, Ben and Sue go to land their craft until they're informed via radio not to. That's a pretty good thing, too, because had they landed, they'd have been part of the massive explosion on the runway. <laughs> <laughs> they land the craft nearby and go to check out what was behind the Quatum that took so many other ships. Uh, they head inside the field command center and find a gray-skinned thing. Right. So <laughs> uh, this, this is where it's going to get a little <laughs> hinky here. This is actually the Hulk, but here he's called the Thing because things aren't confusing enough. Sure. Already. Yeah, I know exactly. Like why? Uh, <laughs> why not just call him the Hulk? But uh, this is, of course, Bruce Banner. First appearance, The Incredible Hulk number 1, May 1962, by Stan and Jack. This is Stan Lee's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type character, uh, plus a little Frankenstein mon- monster thrown in for uh, into the mix here. Uh, during the experimental detonation of a gamma bomb, scientist Bruce Banner saves teenager Rick Jones, who had driven onto the testing field to play his harmonica. Uh, Banner pushes Jones into a trench to save him. However, he himself is hit with the blast. He absorbs massive amounts of gamma radiation, and uh, he awakens later seemingly unscathed, but at night transfers, transforms into the Incredible Hulk. Now, after Rick Jones witnessed Banner turn into the Hulk at daytime following a failed attempt by Ross's men to shoot the Hulk into space, they figured out that the transformation is caused by anger. Banner was cured in the Incredible Hulk number four, but chose to restore a form that had Hulk's powers with Banner's intelligence. Banner needed the gamma ray machine to effect this change, but using it left him weak and sickly in his human form. Still, the Hulk has it together enough to become a founding member of the Avengers, the first issue debuting with a cover date of September 1963. By the third issue, reliance on the Gamma Ray machine has turned the Hulk into a rampaging monster, subject to spontaneous changes. Back and forth to Banner and whatever. Uh, Tales to Astonish number 64, February 1965, cover date, was the last Hulk story for a while to feature him speaking in complete sentences. When the Hulk is catapulted into the future by the experimental T-Ray in Tales to Astonish number 75, January 1966, cover date, Rick Jones assumes he's dead. And so, in issue number 77, tells the rival for Betty Ross's love, Major Glenn Talbot, about his secret identity. Consequently, when the Hulk returns to the present, he's hunted by the military again. Now, during the 1970s, Banner nearly marries Betty Ross, uh, but doesn't. She marries Talbot a couple of years later. Damn it! I know. (laughs) He also travels to another dimension where a magical empress gives the Hulk his Banner intelligence back. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Why not? Uh, He would be a founding member of the Defenders, created by Roy Thomas, debuting in Marvel Feature Number 1, December 1971, cover date. Uh, You can learn all about the Defenders in Episode 32 of the Cosmic Treadmill, where we read the Defenders Number 1 one from 1972 and we i think we also talk about their their formation the little bits that uh brought them all together now in the 1980s bruce banner and the hulk would be physically split by doc samson this happened in incredible hulk number 315 january 1986 by john byrne who was a 
bringing the Hulk back to his roots by splitting him. Right, exactly yeah. how it was intended. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, Banner is contracted to form the Hulkbusters. This is a team to uh, form to capture the Hulk. Pretty much, it's in the name, uh, folks. It's right it's there. <laughs> uh, now, the Banner and the Hulk would get back together, though. This is Incredible Hulk number three twenty three, September nineteen eighty six, cover date by Al Milgram. And the next issue of the Hulk, he returns to his gray coloration and transforms only at night, which really is getting him back to his roots. Right. <laughs> Too bad Burn's already gone at this point. <laughs> uh, also during the Burn run, he uh, he married, he finally marries Betty Ross, which another right. thing to get him back to his roots. Right. Uh, exactly <laughs> the way it was intended, yeah. Sure. That's what uh, Stan and Jack wanted. In uh, Incredible Hulk number 347, September 1988, cover date by Peter David and Jeff Purves, the Hulk uh, mafioso persona, this is Mr. Fix-It, emerges, and he starts working in Las Vegas as a hired hood. Uh, during this time, Bruce Banner is a recessive personality within the Hulks, uh, a.k.a. Mr. Fix-It's mind. In uh, the 1990s, Hulk would turn green again, and Bruce Banner would be diagnosed with disassociative identity disorder, proven that it ain't easy being any shade of green because there were a lot in there. There were a lot. They did. He did get a couple of different uh, hues, didn't he, over the years? <laughs> he did. Uh, so Ben Grimm is taking acknowledging the Hulk, who in this universe again is called the Thing. Uh, remember, <laughs> try to keep that straight. Uh, ben Grimm, who is not the Thing, says, "Sweet Ed Petunia." Some kind of of thing. Pity the poor humans. No idea what you're truly up against. The thing grabs Ben Grimm by the throat. That ain't a line I thought we'd ever be saying. <laughs> no. <laughs> Smells more like more the same mutant with half of the brain. And he fires directly into Banner's hide. And Banner is so taken aback he goes, ouch. It's uh, not terribly effective. Not quite a mutant fly boy, but so much more than the man I was. Sue lunges at Banner and grabs him around the shoulders, and Ben uses that distraction to give Bruce another blast. Next thing they know, they find a bleeding Bruce Banner huddled by the wreckage. No, 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 please, please, please don't hurt me. Uh, Sue and Ben, they don't put two and two together here. They assure Banner that the creature is gone, and Banner convinces Sue and Ben to escort him to the Peace Summit at Buckingham Rays. Speaking of which, we hop over to see Mikhail on a stage regaled by his adoring public. They're yelling, Make hell! Make hell! Make me hell! And he is greeted by the ranking officer of Eurasian security, Victor Von Doom. Now, we know him better as Dr. Doom. First appearance, Fantastic Four number 5, January 1962, cover date, created by Stan and Jack. Victor Von Doom was born decades ago to a tribe of Latvarian Romani people. His mother, Cynthia Von Doom, was a witch who died at the hands of Mephisto when Victor was young. His father, Werner Von Doom, led the tribe and was a renowned medicine man. Then the wife of the ruler of Latveria falls ill. Werner, Werner is summoned, and he brings Victor along with him. He cannot cure the queen, so Werner is sentenced to death, but he takes off with his son before they can get him. Werner dies of exposure on the mountainside, and Victor makes his way back to his home camp. There, he finds his mom's witchy instruments and vows to learn their use and get revenge on Latveria's king. 
And he does just that, blending sorcery and technology. Oh, what a guy. Uh, that gets him the attention of Empire State University in America, the only college in America. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, there he meets a young Reed Richards and instantly dislikes him. When Richards tries to correct one of Doom's formulas, Victor chases him away and the thing blows up in his face, scarring Victor forever. Expelled after the accident, Victor traveled the world until he, until he collapsed on a Tibetan mountainside. He was rescued by a clan of monks who then became his minions. Victor forged himself a suit of armor, complete with an iron mask, and took the mantle Dr. Doom. He returned to Latveria and started a revolution that would install him as the country's leader. And Dr. Doom was a jealous foil to Reed Richards in the Fantastic Four. And frankly, that hasn't changed much since he was created. I, I do love that he wouldn't wait for the mask to cool, and he put no. it on his face and scarred the whole thing up. He really worse. just seared him. Well, you know, originally Jack Kirby said he imagined the scarring on Victor Von Doom's face to be just like a chin scar, just minimal. Yeah, yeah, and that he was so vain. But you know, once you secured the scalding mask to your face, it was probably pretty bad. After <laughs> you that. turn it yeah. to hamburger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Doom goes. In the name of all who still rally to receive you and yours, from every free human sovereignty left in the land, welcome to our capital, Prelate Rasputin. And Mikhail says, Such pedantry is needless, Von Doom, and regrets uncalled for. I am here to lighten your load, not add to it. Mikhail lifts his hands aloft to address the crowd. On this bright night, people of our planet, I come not as agent of apocalypse, simply a soul in search for brotherhood. War is our common foe, a waste of lives and land, serving no one but the insatiable gods of chaos and death. I offer seeds for the starving, clothing for the cult, and the promise of so much more as a fellowship for a new world order. A union of power and peace, mutant and man, in a new nation, under my protection. And if everyone says, make hell unity. Unity. Make hell unity. Unity. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah, I like uh, it. <laughs> now, among the crowd are Stark and Stacy, and they're uh, concerned that the common rapple appear to be hanging on Mikhail's every word, because they are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mikhail then invites Donald Blake and company on board his ship, so he might prove that he's got nothing to hide. Now, this crew this crew includes uh, Blake, Tony Stark, Gwen Stacy, Ben Grimm, Sue Storm, Victor Von Doom, uh, Clint Barton, and Bruce Banner. And so, they board the ship. As it takes off, Mikhail's human followers leap to board the ship, but none of them can reach it. So basically, they're jumping off a platform to reach a ship that they can't reach, so they're jumping to their death. Oh, but the stories their kids will have to tell, right? Isn't that going to be something? <laughs> uh, so Ben, now they're chit-chatting, and Ben says, Feels like walking into the lion's den and throwing away the key to me. Don't know what those folks think they're missing up here, but they're acting uh, all kind of crazy. And Mikhail responds, Crazy? Isn't it far more insane to ask them to trust your so-called High Council humans to pledge blind faith in weak-willed leaders from the shadow end of the gene pool? Yeah, that was the sound of the other shoe dropping right hey, there. Hey, we just heard a little more than uh, we were supposed to hear. There you go. Now, uh, Gwen fixes her gun on Mikhail, which is just adorable. Really, now, of all people, Dr. Doom convinced her to lower her weapon. Mikhail proceeds to introduce the gang to his pet empath, that experiment of his who was redlining earlier in the uh, book. 
This is a young man crucified among tech and wires. He's also the same character from the 616 universe with the same code name, Empath. Real name, Manuel de la Roca. First appearance, New Mutants number 16, June 1984, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Sal Buscema. He attended the Massachusetts Academy and was one of the Hellions, the students of the White Queen. Dude has a kind of creepy relationship with Emma Frost, really. He was used by Frost to mentally manipulate Magneto while he was the headmaster of Xavier's. This facilitated the New Mutants joining the Hellions for a mission. Empath would fall for New Mutant Magma, who would eventually detect the Hellions. He'd survived the attack by Trevor Fitzroy that claimed so many other Hellions and left Emma Frost in a catatonic state. Mikhail addresses his new human hostages. Ironic that the handful who might have opposed me. Those most resisted to Emmanuel's most powerful promise instead are delivered directly into my grasp. Yeah, real ironic. That's one way to look at it. I can't think of any other ways to look it's at it. It's pretty ironic, I gotta <laughs> admit. Yeah, they thought it was gonna go one way and went another. That's kind of irony right there. Yeah. Now, that's the end of this issue, and this issue ends with a look into the Human High Council's files. And here we're gonna learn the fates of a few Marvel, uh, you know, uh, long-staying people here who don't make an appearance in the issue. Right. And those include Frank Castle, a.k.a. The Punisher. First appearance, Amazing Spider-Man number 129, February 1974, cover date, created by Jerry Conway, Ross Andrew, and John Romita. He was inspired in part by Don Pendleton's The Executioner book series, in which a Vietnam veteran's family is killed by the mafia. Okay, maybe Frank was based pretty closely to that book series, because that's more or less his exact origin. I I mean, you might even say it was... Taken completely from that book series. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> we'll take it to uh, to Mr. Conway here. He says, I was fascinated by the Dan Pendleton executioner character. Yeah, no kidding. Which was fairly popular at the time, and I wanted to do something inspired by that, although not to my mind, a copy of it. Well, <laughs> okay. well I, I think that character in the books is called Frank Rassel. That's the difference. Yeah. The big thing, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's Fred Castle. <laughs> Fred, <the> Ca- Fred <laughs> Castle. <laughs> Now, uh, Punisher first appeared as an antagonist to Spider-Man, and he was totally cool killing criminals willy-nilly. Now, he was looking to kill Spidey as a handful of issues earlier. It appeared as though Spider-Man had killed Norman Osborn. And, of course, this is just a few issues after the deaths of uh, Gwen Stacy and Norman. Yeah. Uh, Punisher was treated pretty cartoonishly in early appearances, lashing out against petty crimes and stuff like that. But like, the ca- like littering and right, exactly. And yeah, that was his whole stuff. thing. He was, he was yeah. just a total hardliner, you know, almost like you know, my way or you get shot in the face way. Basically, uh, but the character was a surprise hit, and he started making more appearances and would eventually receive his own four, then five issue limited series in 1986. Heading into the 1990s, Punisher was popular enough to have his own line of comics, as well as a magazine. There was Punisher that ran for 105 issues from July 1987 to July 1995, cover dates. Punisher World War Journal that was 80 issues from November 1988 to July 1995, covers. Punisher War Zone had 41 issues, March through 1992 through July 1995, cover dates. Punisher Magazine was 16 issues, November 1989 to September 1990, cover dates. And Punisher Armory, 10 issues, just in 1990. His popularity did, however, begin to wane in the mid-90s, apparently in July 1995. (laughs) From the looks of it, that seems to be when these uh, titles could no longer be supported, which might be why he doesn't have a more prominent role during the Age of Apocalypse. 
Uh, I mean, really, it's true, Chris. If this had happened even two years earlier, oh, it'd it, be all over. It might have been the age of Punishopolis. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. It's uh, different. It would have been. Uh, then, of course, Peter Parker is also in the files. That's uh, we know him better as Spider-Man. First appeared in Amazing Fantasy number fifteen, August nineteen sixty-two, created by Stan and Steve Ditko. Uh, Speedy was raised in Forest Hills, Queens, by his aunt May and uncle Ben. He was a studious fellow, not quite popular with his classmates. All right, he was a nerd. Mm-hmm. And uh, on a class trip to some sciencey thing, Peter is bitten by a spider that has been bombarded with radioactivity, and this gives him. The proportionate strength of a spider and the ability to climb walls, you know, like a spider. Using his know-how, he builds wrist-mounted web shooters and develops sticky web fluid, which is a pretty neat trick for a 16-year-old, if you ask us. For sure. And uh, now he is Spider-Man, uses his newfound powers initially to win amateur wrestling matches and become a public figure. When a crook that Peter failed to stop kills his Uncle Ben, he learns that with great power comes great responsibility. And uh, pretty much every moment of his life after that is an unbearable hell of yeah. guilt and, <laughs> and guilt regret. And death and, you know, just like remorse. <laughs> oh, goodness. Now, perhaps more than his Marvel Comics contemporaries, Peter's struggles are constant. He's got to worry about his Aunt May. He's got to worry about paying bills, dealing with bullies, talk, thinking about chicks. You know, this guy's mind is always reeling. Yeah. Uh, Peter winds up getting a job as a photographer for the Daily Bugle, giving uh, J. Jonah Jameson ample opportunities to ball him out. Uh, Pete specializes in providing candid shots of Spider-Man, for obvious reasons, <laughs> which uh, Jameson uses to demonize the fella in the newspaper. Uh, eventually, Peter Parker dates his sweetheart, Gwen Stacy, and, uh, you know, we already went through that, and, it, you know, it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well for them, no. <laughs> uh, while mourning Gwen, Pete gets closer to Mary Jane Watson, a character introduced partially in Amazing Spider-Man number 25, June 1965, by Lee and Ditko, literally just in shadows. Yep. But, and then she shows up fully in issue 42, November 1966, by Lee and Romita Sr., where she says, that's the one, you know, face a tiger, you hit the jackpot. So, like, a full, more than a year later, you know what I mean? Sure. They, they pull her out. So this is a talk about, you know, uh, burying the lead or whatever. <laughs> uh, Pete proposes to Mary Jane in issue 182, July 1978, covered eight by Marf Wolfman and Ross Andrew, but she turns him down in the next issue. So... Peter goes on with his life, graduates college, he delates, he dates Felicia Hardy, a.k.a. the Black Cat, for a while, and uh, does his regular Spider-Man thing around Manhattan. Uh, due to the events in Marvel's Secret Wars maxi-series, Peter acquires a new black-and-white costume and wears it for a year, beginning in Amazing Spider-Man number 252, May 1984, covered eight by Tom DeFalco, Roger Stern, and Ron Friends. Turns out the suit is a symbiotic alien that makes Peter do some vicious rounds while he's asleep. He's able to shuck the suit and web of Spider-Man number one, April 1985, by Louise Simonson and Greg LaRocque. But it, or is it LaRocque? LaRocque. One of those. But it comes back in the form of the monstrous Venom, which then has its own side spurt named Carnage, <laughs> and it, it does go on and on and on from there. And luckily, like the Punisher, Venom's uh, f- f- you know popularity was was waning at this point too. Otherwise, I'm sure yeah. he'd have had armies of symbiotes. Would have in, had, uh, exactly. It would have been a whole. Yeah. Would have been a whole Venom <laughs> war, basically. <laughs> Russia would have been Venom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Peter Parker proposes to Mary Jane again. This is Amazing Spider-Man number two ninety, July nineteen eighty seven, cover date by David Michelini and John Romita Jr. And this time, she accepts. Whoa. 
Yeah, they're wed in the comics in Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21. This is 1987. This is David Michelini, Jim Shooter, and Paul Ryan. Uh, however, they married for realsies on June 5th, 1987 at Shea Stadium with Stan Lee officiating the ceremony. Ooh. Yeah. Just a, a year after the Mets won the World Series. That's right. It was it, it was it was actually quite a little event, as I recall. Yeah. And, uh, it's this footage of it online. Well, oh, definitely I'll try to remember yeah. to put that in the uh, show notes. For sure. Now, uh, shortly after the marriage, Peter is buried alive by Craven the Hunter during his last hunt. And this is the first time it becomes clear that Peter's spidey antics now affect more than just him, because, you know, he is married, and, and Mary Jane does know the dual identity. Right. Uh, after some time passes, Peter's parents, Mary and Richard, return, claiming to have been held captive by the Red Skull all those years. They're just, you know, they're revealed to be actually LMDs, which are life model decoys. Yeah, which are, uh, we call those story conveniences in the Marvel parlance is really what Indeed. <laughs> uh, Peter's life was thrown for a loop when Carnage tries taking over Manhattan during the Maximum Garbage event. Uh, <laughs> and if that wasn't bad enough, next came the Clone Saga. Look, uh, you know, we went over this in Cosmic Treadmill episode 24, so we implore you to give that episode a listen because... This episode's going to be long enough. I, I don't know if we want to tack on another hour. We can't to talk just about do it that. Yeah. Especially when, when Peter's appearance here is a picture of his tombstone. Exactly. That, He's that, not even it. here. It's just, it's just like, yeah, exactly. Well, we'll, we'll reveal what happened to these characters soon, but <laughs> we don't actually see them do anything. There's also yep. May Parker, a.k.a. Golden Oldie. Okay, not really. Uh, first appearance was Amazing Fantasy number 15, just like Spidey, August 62, created by Stan and Steve. Peter Parker's feeble aunt uh, and Ben Parker's widow makes a wicked wheat cake that Peter can't get enough of. Almost constantly sickly early on in Spidey's run, usually the reason why Peter would have to seek odd jobs. Peter could never come clean about his being Spider-Man for fear that it would be too much for her heart to take. And she was actually extremely fearful of Spider-Man anyway, so he was actually probably right about that. May would date and nearly marry Spidey villain Dr. Octopus, uh, after Peter moved out, she would join the Grey Panthers, a militant group of ulcers that wielded batons down the streets of Forest Hills. Okay, okay. It was just a group looking for civil rights for the elderly, but what a good name, huh? Mm-hmm. Now, during a protest, May would suffer a heart attack. Finally. I mean, we've been waiting for it since 1962. <laughs> it it, it happened took, to like, decades, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, that heart was playing the long con there. Uh, now, while convalescing in the hospital, she'd meet the curmudgeonly Nathan Lubinsky. Somewhere around this point, May would turn her Forest Hills home into, like, a, this, like, sort of weird flop house. They were always, yeah, I know. It's like, anyone could stay there. It was like, what is going like people on? Are on the, people are on the porch. There's hammocks. It's like, what's going on here? Uh, she, she and Nathan would be engaged. Uh, he would guilt trip Peter about dropping out of grad school because at this point, May and Peter weren't on speaking terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nathan would be killed by the Vultures gang over some old gambling debts, which is something that, oddly, May blames Peter for. Yeah, they, they were just not getting along at this period no. in time. Uh, heading into the Age of Apocalypse, May Parker took what we believe would be her final bow. This is an amazing Spider-Man number 400. It featured her passing, only after revealing to Peter that she'd always known about his double life. A wonderful story and a fitting end. Uh, while it lasted, unfortunately, but that's now getting ahead of ourselves. As of now, she would be passed in the regular yes. world. Oh, and that uh, golden oldie bit we mentioned earlier, that's in reference to the time that May Parker became a Herald of Galactus. For real. Yeah, check out uh, Marvel Team-Up number 137, January 1984 cover date. Should we tell them that happened on a different Earth? 
Nah, it's more fun this way. Yeah, read the comic, folks. You'll have a good time. <laughs> also mentioned is Ben Parker. First appearance again, Amazing Fantasy number 15 by Stan and Steve. The uncle of Peter Parker instilled in his nephew the concept that with great power must come great responsibility. He dies in his first appearance due in part to Peter's negligence. And uh, to my knowledge, at least he hasn't come back to life yet, right? Let's hope we don't have to edit that soon. It's true. Could be any know. minute. Could be any oh. minute. He'll come back with a rocket, a rocket pack, and uh, you know whatever. And, and four solo titles. <laughs> uh, for more on Ben and May's uh, possible potential youth, check out episode number fifty-five of the Cosmic Treadmill when we discussed Mark Millar and Terry Dodson's trouble, which is mm-hmm. a sort of a telling of their younger days in a way. Sort of, kind of. Also mentioned in this file is Reed Richards, a.k.a. Mr. Fantastic. First appearance, Fantastic Four, number one, November 1961, cover date, created by Stan and Jack. After graduating from Harvard with multiple PhDs and meeting Victor Von Doom, Ben Grimm, and the Storms, Reed would design a craft that could fly to Mars and beyond. When the government threatened to cut funding, Reed took it upon himself to fly the thing on his own for his test trip. Uh, He'd take his pals Sue, Johnny, and Ben with him for the ride. After being bombarded by cosmic rays, Reed found himself with the ability to stretch. In Stan Lee conversation, Lee claims that Mr. Fantastic's stretching powers were based on Plastic Man, who had no equivalent at Marvel. Granted, the Marvel Age of Heroes kind of started with the Fantastic Four, so I don't think there were very many analogs. I don't really. That, what are the heroes are we talking about? <laughs> Captain America, that was, and Namor, that was pretty much it. And that the, was it. The first human torch. And the android human torch. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Reed and company would form the Fantastic Four. Reed was the team's leader. As Marvel's first family, so long as they have those film rights, the Fantastic Four would face off against eventual Marvel staples such as the Skrulls and Doctor Doom. Also, Galactus and the Silver Surfer, that was a pretty huge story. Uh, In Fantastic Four Annual number 3, as mentioned, Reed married Sue Storm. And in Fantastic Four Annual 6, Reed becomes a proud papa to Baby Franklin. He's a mutant child born with incredible powers rivaling even the Celestials. Reed would be put before Cosmic Tribunal during the trial of Galactus. He was held up for sparing the life of the planet Gobbler. His defense was basically Galactus gonna Galactus, which is good enough to get them both off. (laughs) John Byrne himself was called in as a witness to the trial as he wrote the FF's cosmic exploits inside the Marvel Universe as well. Uh, Reed briefly left the Fantastic Four and joined the Avengers. Reed had trouble taking orders from Cap, though, so he went back to where he was the big, big wheel. After returning to the team that he founded, he was pitted against the Dark Rider, an alternate evil version of Reed, who hopped from reality to reality, deep-sixing every other Reed that he'd meet. Mm-hmm. Also here, Johnny Storm, a.k.a. the Human Torch. First appearance, Fantastic Four number 1, November 1961, cover date, Stan Jack. Uh, on board Reed's fateful, ship in, uh, fateful trip into space, post-cosmic uh, ray bombardment, had the ability to per- burst into flames. This is a renovation of the Human Torch concept, originally created by Carl Burgos in 1939. This is the android, uh, Jim Hammond Human Torch. Right. He first appeared in Marvel Comics number 1, October 1939 cover. Brother of Sue and eventual brother-in-law to Reed, He'd attend Metro College in New York City. He was dorm mates with Wyatt Wingfoot, and he also met his Golden Age namesake. After meeting the Inhumans, Johnny would fall in love with Crystal. This was a short-lived romance, because Crystal would eventually marry and mate with Quicksilver. Uh, He'd move on to Ben Grimm's former squeeze, the blind Alicia Masters. They'd even get married. Well, 
sort of, because it turned out that Alicia was actually a scroll named Elijah. But legally, it still holds in court. It does. That's the weird thing. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny knocked her up just before she got herself killed. She'd get better, but they don't mention the pregnancy again. Probably for good reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, there's a file on Namor. Full name is Namor McKenzie. First appearance was Motion Picture fun- Funnies Weekly, number one, April 1939, cover date created by Bill Everett. Motion Picture Funnies was intended as a giveaway to be sent to movie theaters by Funnies Incorporated. The idea was scrapped, and as of 1974, only eight samples of the giveaway have been located. After Motion Picture Funnies Weekly fell through, Bill Everett shifted the Submariner character over to Marvel Comics number one, October 1939 cover date. Timely Comics was a client of Funnies Incorporated, so it felt like a natural fit, and of course, Timely was Marvel in her previous incarnation. Yes. Uh, comics historian Les Daniels referred to Namor in his earlier appearances as a freak in the service of chaos. Citing that, while Namor acted in many ways like a villain, it was always in pursuit of justice. And he is a very strange character in those days. Yes. Uh, Namor would side with the Allies during World War II, and this would later be revealed as Namor serving on the Invaders, alongside Captain America, Bucky, the android Human Torch, and Toro, his sidekick. Post-World War II, Namor would vanish along with the rest of the superheroes. Aside from a very brief return in 1954 to 1955, Namor wouldn't resurface. (laughs) Resurface. Uh, Until Fantastic Four number four, May 1962, where he is discovered as an amnesiac, helmless man by Johnny Storm. After getting his memory back, Namor would return to Atlantis only to find it had been destroyed from nuclear testing. And, uh, yeah, he was pretty pissed off at that. A little bit, yeah. Now, over the years, Namor's constitution and affiliation shifted back and forth from hero to villain quite a bit. Uh, He'd even share the supervillain team-up title with Doctor Doom for a year. This really always bothered me. I could never get a beat on this guy. (laughs) It's true. It's true. You you always want to keep him at arm's length. (laughs) Exactly. How could you ever (laughs) trust this guy? But anyway. No. Uh, Namor would fall for Sue Storm very early on, which we talked about earlier, that love triangle between she, he, and uh, eventual husband, Reed. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd give up and eventually nearly marry his royal cousin, Lady Dorma. Uh, okay, I guess. I guess laws are different in that's Atlantis. That's how it goes in Atlantis, folks. I don't, we cannot. Atlantis is the very, very deep. <laughs> right. Um, now, uh, Namor is a founding Atlantis, member of the I think Defenders. Like to call it right. I'm sorry. Huh? The Appalachian <laughs> Atlantis, right? That's what we yes. call that. Yeah. Now, Namor was a founding member of the Defenders, along with Doctor Strange and the Hulk, and eventually the Silver Surfer. And again, for more on their formation and first outings, you can check out episode 32 of the Treadmill in the Archives. Now, later, with money raised via sunken treasure, uh, Namor would purchase Oracle Incorporated and turn it into an environmental and conservation outfit. They'd also sponsor uh, Heroes for Hire later on. He'd lose his cute little ankle wings in a battle against Sludge, the garbage monster, or Sludge, right? That's Guessing more sludge, like it, yeah. yeah. Uh, but those wings would come back. They're just too adorable. He traveled to Kunlun and discovered the presumed dead Danny Rand. Uh, we told you a few episodes back that Iron Fist got better, so don't worry. So now looking at these files uh, to see where all these characters are in the Age of Apocalypse, we have Frank Castle, Missing in Action, Peter, May, and Benjamin Parker, Culled, Reed Richards, Presumed Dead, Johnny Storm, Presumed Dead, and Namor, Killed in Action. So I'm glad that we did all those bios so that we can find out that they don't exist here. 
They don't. Uh, but we did. We got a peek <laughs> at him, and that's 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 the context for you. But now we move on to the next and last book of the show. Yes, X Universe number two, June nineteen ninety five, cover date. Dying Breath by Scott Lobdell, Terry Cavanaugh, Carlos Pacheco, and Terry Dodson. Now we met the first three. Let's meet Terry. We and it's the same Terry that we've discussed a few times here. It's very very brief. Right. Uh, originally from Oregon. He began working in 1991 at Revolutionary Comics. Those are the folks who put out the black and white illustrated bios and stories about rock artists and groups. He came to a mainstream prominence as an artist on Malibu Comics' Ultraverse title Mantra in 1993, which was co-created with Mike W. Barr. End of the story. We are on board Mikhail's ship, and the familiar folks we ran into last issue are locked in a sort of stasis. Mikhail is looking to augment them into more usable vessels, starting with Tony Stark, and we watch him receive a rather large injection into his heart hole. Also on board Mikhail's ship, the Keeper, Murdoch, keeps watch over Empath. He is ordered not to let the boy die from a doctor lurking in the shadows because he's vital in fomenting the human insurrection on the ground. Yeah, the doctor goes, do not let him die, Keeper, as long as he still fans the flames of the first... Down below. Elsewhere, the Human High Council are holding a meeting with General Thunderbolt Ross. Full name is Thaddeus E. Ross. First appearance was Incredible Hulk number one, May 1962, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. He's a general in the Air Force and father of eventual Banner Bride, Betsy Betty Ross. He was in charge of the Gamma Bomb Project, which turned uh, Bruce Banner into the Hulk accidentally, and uh, thus began a long-lasting rivalry. Ross aligned with baddies such as Leader, Modoc, and Abomination in his Hulk in his Hulk Hunt for the Hulk. Sorry about that. <laughs> and of course, by the way, this is treasonous. Also very stupid. Uh, so he'd find himself dishonorably discharged from the military. Uh, Ross would show up at the wedding of Bruce and Betty, brandishing a pistol, and he shot Rick Jones. Which ought to get him a medal, maybe a commendation back into the military. Sure, I I liked it, yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, Ross would be merged with the electric baddie, Zax. I think that's how you say that. (laughs) And uh, he goes on a rampage. Uh, This ultimately clues him into uh, some of what Banner has to deal with when he turns into the Hulk. Ross dies in Betty's arms, finally giving her and Bruce his blessing. Uh, He'll get better, of course. We know that, but at this point, uh, he's out of the picture. Except in the Age of Apocalypse. So, uh, Moira says, The voice of the people is loud and clear, me love, but too fickle. The ranks of protesters outside diminish with each passing hour, and more and more be turning to... Ross interrupts her with traitors! Cowards looking for any excuse to abandon their own. If you ask me, and you did. <laughs> Lurking nearby is Mikhail. He warns that any and all decisions have been taken out of the hands of the council. The mutants will win because, at the end of the day, the mutants are united. Back on Rasputin's ship, Tony Stark's artificial heart is penetrated in short circuits, which causes a blackout. Oh, and uh, Tony enters cardiac arrest. But at least the hostages are freed. Yeah, and I mean, Tony's not dead or anything. A second syringe jab from Dr. Donald Blake is enough to wake him up. Uh, Ben Grimm states that Operation Trojan Horse has begun. Yeah, as Tony goes, internal systems are already tracking the tracers hidden in your confiscated guns, Graham, pointing straight to the local ammo dump. And so, next stop, the local ammo dump. Hey! The heroes reclaim their gear and suit up for the next round and snag a pair of hover bikes and leave the ship. Down below, a man leads hundreds of human prisoners to freedom, and that man is 
Bullseye. Real name is Lester something or other. Yeah. First appearance as well, there was Bulls hyphen eye and Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. number 15, November 1969, cover date created by Gary Friedrich and Herb Trimpey. But regardless of what, what Wikipedia might tell you, this ain't him. That guy was Edward Forsyth, Forsyth, and he died in that same issue. Also, he had totally different. He didn't even have the costume, right? Or am I mad? You know, yeah, it, it's he was, totally different. He guy. was just a, yeah. a guy that could shoot well. Uh, Lester first appeared in Daredevil number one thirty-one, March nineteen seventy-six, cover date, and was created by Marv Wolfman and Bob Brown. He's a petty, braggadocious assassin who agreed to be interviewed by the Daily Bugle to publicize his murderous ways. And then he was hired to murder Matt Murdock, and he was unsuccessful at that, but managed to prove himself a formidable foe for Daredevil. And primarily that. uh, He was diagnosed with a brain tumor that caused him to see everybody as Daredevil. So what's an assassin to do but kill everybody? Uh, Daredevil, the real one, is eventually able to win the day, and Bullseye's tumor is removed. During an assignment to kill the Kingpin, Bullseye would actually be hired by the Kingpin to do some jobs for him instead. So the highest bidder, you know. Uh, Now, this is uh, the famous story wherein he kills Elektra. Uh, Also the story where Daredevil allows Bullseye to fall a great distance, seemingly to his death. Uh, He'd survive, however, be paralyzed, and uh, he'd get better. Actually, better than better, and adamantium lace spine is in his future. (laughs) That's a nice upgrade. Yeah, really. Uh, ben and Sue help Bullseye free those prisoners. This is now back in the Age of Apocalypse, and a few well-placed blasts from above from them. Tony and Gwen land at different spot uh, on Mikhail's ship and infiltrate. They find some rogue humans who immediately begin sounding the alarms, and it's here they run into the thing, which is we would know as the Hulk. You, you get what you know? Oh, you, you you know it by now. Yeah, uh, Banner, who is hol- who's saying this to Stark while holding an unconscious Gwen Stacy, he says, "Sorry, little man, time's up." Meanwhile, Donald Blake arrives at the Human High Council and finds Mikhail bugging them. Blake reports that Mikhail no longer wields any power. His ship has been taken over by the Resistance. Mikhail, not having anything else to lose, sixes Strife Force on the Council, which is really just a handful of augmented humans in really lame cyber-organic armor. They do not immediately act in Mikhail's interest, so he uses his powers to force them to point their guns at the Human High Council, but then they drop to the ground dead, courtesy of Victor Von Doom, who also just arrived. Yes, uh, we rejoin the Keeper and Empath as the latter squirms and whimpers in pain. Murdoch decides to put him out of his misery and beats him to death. Hey. <laughs> he just gets his stick out and beats the holy hell out of him to death. Uh, down below, uh, all the people are kind of freaked out because they're no longer having their emotions controlled by empath. Ben Grimm and the rest of the cavalry arrive to lend a hand and to take the scared humans to safety. In so doing, Ben grabs a little baby. Just snatch a baby up. Uh, <laughs> elsewhere, Tony Stark is trying to facilitate the transport, but then... The Thing, who is really the Hulk, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Fred, I can't allow that, Stark. Step away from that console before. And then Gwen approaches from behind, holding her gun. She says, Surprise, gruesome! And she fires at him with a shoot! I was faking it! Give this girl an Oscar. Or or don't, because she's pretty terrible. Yeah, don't bother. (laughs) Guess again, girly. You're as good as dead already. You just don't know enough to lie down for the count. Yeah, so Gwen runs, but really, I mean, he's right. How far is she going to get here? She's kind of 
Kind they're of on a craft. ship. Yeah, yeah, they're on a spaceship here or a craft. <laughs> so Tony reports that she brought him she bought him enough time to breach the ship's security shields. However, it was also too much time because the seawall has been launched, whatever the hell that is. Yeah. Back with the human high council, Mikhail stands surrounded by the few surviving members of his strife force. Until Doom kills the last one. Um, oddly, this kind of amuses Mikhail. Killing your own comes easily, teen soldier. Dare you challenge me directly? Donald Blake decides to take him up on this and lunges at him from behind. No. Use the flagship to get the counselors out of here, Victor. Rasputin's mine. And Mikhail says, Dream on, Jin Jok. In my dreams, devil, I soar through a far finer world than this. I dine and dance among graceful goddesses on the other side of the universe and share home and hearth with heroes. That's an oddly specific dream, is it not? Yeah, what is Mikhail, a dream uh, doctor or something? (laughs) In reality, here, now, I'm just another man in a role I was never meant to play. Blake runs Mikhail through, and they both tumble through the clock of Big Ben to their deaths. Look at what you've made of us all, Mikhail. As they fall, Apocalypse's seawall draws ever nearer. Nearby, Ben and Sue direct traffic for the evacuation. <laughs> Someone's got to do it, you know? <laughs> sure. Uh, back with Stark, the Thing, who is really the, the Hulk, Hulk yep. <laughs> sees on the monitor that the seawall is a thing. And this causes him to transform back into puny Banner. Stark gives a rousing speech, which ends with the line... None of us ever set out to be Avengers. Oh, that's just cute, isn't it? Isn't you it know? adorable? What yeah. an illusion to win. You know? <laughs> uh, Victor Von Doom returns to Stu Storm, and she's ticked that he's returned without Donald Blake, and punches him in the face for it. Yeah. She, she then goes to find Ben to report the news of the very likely successful evacuation. She finds him with a hole blown in his chest. He's still holding the baby, who appears to be okay. Sue reaches for the child who's wearing a bracelet with the name Frankie on it, likely a nod to Franklin Richards. First appearance was Franklin Four, Fantastic Four <laughs> Annual Number 3, November 1968, covered eight, created by Stan and Jack. He's the son of Reed and Sue Richards, born with mutant powers on the same level as Celestials. Reed would create psychic inhibitors to keep Franklin's powers under control, allowing him to have a normal life. You know, as normal as being the son of half of the Fantastic Four can be anyway. I mean, he still was raised in the Baxter building, for goodness yeah. sake, you know. Uh, Franklin was able to work around the inhibitors and even secretly joined up with Power Pack, taking the code name Tattletail. They grew close and the powers became something of a second family for him. The powers and the Richards grew tight as well. During Reed and Sue's time with the Avengers, Franklin bonded with Jarvis. He'd be kidnapped by his grandfather, Nathaniel Richards, in order to stop him from having a child with Rachel Summers. The child would would grow up to be Jonathan Richards' hyperstorm, a villain, a bad dude. Uh, Franklin would return aged into teenagehood, which is uh, you know probably the dumbest thing ever if you don't want him to try to get it on with Phoenix. I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna take a, a baby and and then bring back a hormone. Yeah, literally. Totally I mean, to, yeah. Like, after he stopped wanting to have sex with everything, maybe he can get over it. You know. <laughs> now, while he's a teenager, he would take the code name Psylord and briefly run the Fantastic <laughs> Force. Mm. Yeah, that was a thing. That was something. Uh, so this version was rendered obsolete when Hyperstorm returned Youngling Franklin to the FF. At the same time, Nathaniel snatched him. 
Worth noting that Franken was mixed up in that issue of Marvel Team-Up that turned Aunt May into Golden Oldie during the Assistant Editor's Month that we mentioned earlier. The baby isn't him, though. It's just a nod. Hell, it could be a nod to Frankie Ray, that other Nova who was Galactus's herald. Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's Nova. <do> it. <laughs> Not that Nova. Real name, Frankie Ray. First appearance, Fantastic Four, number 164, November 1975, created by Roy Thomas and George Perez. He worked at the United Nations. She. She worked at the United <laughs> Nations, met Johnny Storm, and began dating him despite her deathly fear of fire. This fear was actually a mental block put on her by her stepfather, Phineas Horton, the creator of the original Human Torch. After breaking the mental block, Frankie realized she had superpowers of the flaming variety. She volunteered to be the Herald of Galactus and didn't really have a problem finding planets for the big guy to gobble up. So Frankie would get involved with the Silver Surfer because that's what anybody who deals with Galactus is eventually going to have to do, yeah. Yes. Now this baby isn't hurt either, but if nothing else, we are completionists. <laughs> sure are. <laughs> At that moment, back in the story, a white light overtakes the Earth and all of reality passes. And this will make much more sense next week after we finally cover X-Men Omega. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, next week it'll be Omega as well as a look at X-Men Prime, which is the return of the uh, of the main Marvel Universe there for the X-Men and uh, their new place. It, it doesn't just come back like in the... Uh... Terminator versus uh, what was that? The uh, <laughs> Robocop, versus Robocop versus Terminator, where it's just like you can actually physically see the uh, future and change. <laughs> oh god, that was the best. No, we we need and we need another five dollar one shot. So yeah, we will get X Men Prime. Oh, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, marketing was like, uh, can we get another squeeze, another issue out of this? I'm surprised they didn't have even more issues. They're just like, what are the what is the average person doing at this time? And they have like, <laughs> right. you know, whatever, uh, you know, uh, Millie, Millie the model. In the it's age funny of apocalypse, because we, we don't see a lot of the uh, a lot of characters. I mean, like Spider Man doesn't get anything but a tombstone. It's interesting. We don't see J. Jonah Jameson. We, it's no Venom, uh, no Shield. It's very, very odd. It is. I know a lot. Like we we've been saying a lot of times, some of these aspects seem really thought out of like what might have happened if the, sure. if this one event had changed, how this would have spun out to change other. Things. Other times, doesn't really seem very... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like, you know, we'll put some scary teeth on this one and keep it moving. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, definitely having a good time. Definitely really had a good time with these two issues. They were just, sure. they sort of did add, like, a little bit of levity. As weird as that sounds, because they're just as gory <laughs> and messed up as the other ones, but there was something very kooky and uh, silly about them, I thought. Um, but next week, we will finish up Age of Apocalypse, finally. It's spun out into six episodes. And, six uh, weeks in the making, yep. Then we will talk about, uh, you know, our thoughts and how that affected the industry and all that. If you want to talk to us about that, write to us about Age of Apocalypse or about why The Thing was called The Hulk and The Hulk was called The <laughs> Thing or anything uh, comics-related or whatever's on your mind, you write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic history. On Tumblr, cosmic history.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at cosmic and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. See our weekly writings about DC Comics, current ones at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And uh, you can see Chris's personal writings on DC Comics from any time in their publishing history on Chris's on infinite where you write a different. Uh, 
synopsis and review of sorts or a breakdown or discussion, I think is the word. Discussion is the word, yeah. Uh, of uh, different DC comic every day. You did just finish your Vartox week. That was three weeks long. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, now you're going into, uh, I saw something else random that I was love. Oh, the Dingbats I saw recently. Oh, yeah, the Dingbats on uh, Danger Street. Which finished yep. up your first issue special. Uh, I think I saw you're in the 900s now. Am I wrong about this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, wow. we're about 60 days away from hitting the 1,000. So. so I expect that 1,000th post to have a, a hardback release with uh, all different artists uh, drawing A ton of variant it. covers. A lot a of variant, variant covers. covers for that I want to see. <laughs> uh, no, really, this is something you got to check out. And uh, a lot of times it does act as a uh, corollary to the show. Chris is an yeah. yeah, check it out every day, folks. And uh, also you can check out the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. There you can find our show notes as well as a chronological listing of every issue, all, or every issue, every episode of the Cosmic Treadmill, all 104. And uh, also all 20-odd uh, or 30-odd uh, Weird Comics histories and all the shows we do. They're all they're all there for you yep. to find in the order that you're supposed to listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> or in the order it might be uh, for... for uh, OCD folks might want to read them in order or listen to them in right. order like I do when I find a podcast. So there, there is, that's where you can do it. There is a progression, you know, when you hear the earlier ones versus now, we're a lot less uh, polished. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all. We gave him a whole bunch uh, to chew on here this episode, and I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? Yeah, they're, they're, I think there was a story in there. I think, if I recall, wasn't there something about the X-Men? What were you? Maybe. Could have sworn the X-Men were involved in this. We'll, find, we'll have to go back to it next week and see what's going on. We'll, we'll get there next week, yes. I think that'll do it. But uh, until that next week, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill apocalyptically. Now pick what lace who, they ain't what mates do. Got a lot of girls that I love to replace you. Take it to your face, boo, not behind your back. Talk, we never mind that. Funny, never find that. Puff a dime sack, right high. Making save a wine that. No, we go against the Harlem gigolo. Get your pick a low, make the forget though. I represent honeys with money, fly guys and gents. Ride with the tents, that be 35%. So I lay, so I look both ways. Cop says okay, my tent smoke grades, no ways. Be without handing me my. Got plans to get my land and my six. Got a panel on the stand. Pop champagne like I won the championship. Uh, uh, come on. Been around the world and I, yeah, yeah. We've been player hating. I don't know when, I don't know why. Why they want us faded? I don't know why they hate us. Is it our ladies? Or drop the faded? Baby, I was in one bedroom, dreaming of a million. Now I'm in beach houses, cream to the ceiling.